You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. This podcast is sponsored by Receptiva DX. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or multiple miscarriages, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX. Uterine inflammation, if found, can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptiva DX, because the journey's worth it. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility. And today I'm joined by my happy and hilarious co-host and friends, <laughs> Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. How are you you're, guys doing? You're ridiculous. <laughs> See, for, you're happy. For any new listeners, we have like this like little thing about alliteration at the beginning, yeah. <laughs> describing each other. <laughs> Don't know why we do it, but it makes us laugh. So why not? It's our little corny thing. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a cheap laugh and it's amazing. <laughs> it is. It is. So uh, I hear you have a new addition to your, um, I guess it's not really a new addition to your house. To my but kitchen. Your, um, your kitchen. My yeah. kitchen has like... expanded. Yes. <laughs> Did you so... get a private cook? <laughs> no, not quite. That is, that, that's one of my like dreams that I never think will actually come true. Um, but, but, um, so last, I'm going to back up the story a little bit. So last Christmas, my cousin decided that he wanted to bring his smoker to the house and we were going to smoke brisket for Christmas. And we're in Texas, of course, brisket is like a, an amazing staple. And so I was like, great. That's one thing I don't have to worry about when I'm cooking for like 15 people. Yeah. So he did this and that was the first time we had really ever smoked anything at our house and it went really well. Well, right after that, my brother-in-law bought a smoker and he has a house in the town that I live in. And so how expensive are smokers? Like how, how big are they and how expensive are they? And so they can run from like 300 to probably around 2000. Okay. 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 And some of it has to do with bells and whistles and some of it has to do with size. And do you keep it in your house? No, it's outside. Okay. It's, it's, oh, it's like outside. a grill. How big okay, is gotcha. it? How big is it? And is it on wheels? It is on wheels. Ours is on wheels. Okay. They have the, um, they have the special it's one. It's about one and a half times the size of a regular grill. Okay. Is okay. it square like a regular grill? Or? Like it's, it's round on the outside. Round. It's round. Okay. It's like it kind of barrel-ish shape. Is okay. it like one of the big green egg things? So big green egg is a type of smoker slash grill. Ah. This is this is just a smoker. But so let me get back to my story. Get back to my oh, story. Sorry. So my brother bought a smoker and decided to like keep it at our house. So it all was fine until July 4th happened and they were going to have a July 4th party at their house and we were having something at our house and we ended up not being able to smoke something because it was over at their house. And Brooke was like, I want a smoker. (laughs) (laughs) So I put it off and put it off and put it off. And yesterday afternoon, he's like, get in the car. We're going to buy a smoker. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) 
See, that would have been a great like birthday gift. I would have like forced him to wait till some holiday or birthday because I, you know, I've been married so long I can't ever think of anything. He never wants things, and then that rare chance he wants a thing, you know, then I'm like, okay, it's not like I can really say no. So we went to yeah. the fancy like smoker grill place here in New Braunfels, and we bought this amazing smoker. And so we had to do all the prepping for it. You have to burn off all the chemicals and stuff like that. Just like you do when you have new like equipment in your lab, you have to like make sure all the bad stuff's gone. That's right. And so last night we did, I was planning on doing this pasta dish with grilled chicken. So instead we had like half grilled chicken and half smoked chicken and the thighs were amazing. The breasts were really good, but it took extra long because they're thicker. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then last night he had, he had bought a brisket. So we will have brisket after we're done recording this podcast. Oh man, I'm hungry, Susan. I wish, I wish we lived close to New Braunfels. We could eat some brisket. It's we'll gonna be, be cool. Like, I was hour. looking through all yeah. these recipes and like things that you normally carry. You'd be really interested. Things that you normally bake, you uh-huh. can actually do in the smoker, and so you can use different types of. Oh, it's a pellet smoker too. So we're not using chips. We're using the pellets, yeah. and so. You can use like cherry wood and applewood pellets for for like sweeter things. And so I'm I'm excited about like getting some cooking responsibility off of me and outside. And I'm yeah. excited about also like trying yeah. out some baking things. I'm thinking about like brownies in the smoker. Mm-hmm. Brownies in the smoker. Yes. Smoked brownies. Smoked brownies. There's with, some like more apple recipes. or cherry wood. Really? Yeah. Now that mm-hmm. I'd like to try that. More recipes. There's some good cake recipes. Yeah. Really? Grilled pineapple recipes, like all the things. Yeah. Oh, oh and some peaches in there. Yeah. Now that'd be good. That'd be yummy. Yeah. So well, I'm, I'm kind of excited. Cool. Now I'm hungry. It's like not time to eat yet, but I'm hungry. So um, I didn't ask you this earlier, but hopefully you have a question of the day for us, Susan. I always have a question. You're always ready. You're always ready with a question of the day. All right. Let's see here. Okay. So hello. I've listened to practically all your podcasts and I've learned so much. It has empowered me to make my IVF process significantly less scary these past few months. I'm about to finish my fourth and hopefully final IVF cycle soon and will be doing my transfer cycle the following month. Could you please talk about the transfer cycle? Uh, it would help me greatly to mentally prepare for this next phase. Um, also, thank you very much for your podcast. I would re- recommend it to anyone in, in looking into IVF. So I think I think what they're wanting to know is a little bit about transfer cycles and what we do and what we generally recommend. Okay. So transfer cycles are far, uh, far more anticlimactic than everything you've gone through with the retrieval. Very easy. Much easier. Like you're going to look at your, your um, IVF coordinators going, really? You, I'm going to baseline and you're not going to see me for a week. Are you sure? Did I miss something? Did I, am I not doing something? Are you sure you don't want to see, see me like here, here's my blood. Here's my arm. Let me give you labs. Like it's very, you might actually miss the nurses that you work with because you just won't see them that much. Mm -hmm. You won't talk to them nearly, (laughs) nearly as much. So, yeah, um, things tend to be a bit more spread out. Depends on whether you're doing a program cycle versus a natural cycle versus a modified natural cycle. But in general, you do your baseline and make sure that everything is low key, meaning thin endometrium, low hormone levels, and then you start your meds. And then um, you're going to check again and make sure that your estrogen level is appropriately high and your progesterone level is appropriately low and that your lining is thick and pretty. We want it to be trilaminar, which is that three-lined appearance. And then we'll typically have you start your progesterone. And um, once you do that, that's when you're really on the clock. 
the estrogen part of this, when you're priming your lining, that can take as little as eight or nine days. It can take as many as two weeks. And there's a lot of wiggle room in there. So if you're having to work around your doctor's schedule or your schedule, like let them know it's like, oh, I have a big meeting on this day. I'd really prefer, you know, not to you know, be pregnant at this point or have like be started progesterone by this point, what, you know, I'm traveling for a weekend somewhere or whatever. Um, let, let your nurses and your doctors know because there's a lot more manipulation that we can do than what we can do in the middle of an IVF uh, stimulation cycle. Mm-hmm. But the progesterone is when, like Carrie said, when the clock starts. And once you're on progesterone, there's a time somewhere between 104 to 144 hours is sort of like the window when implantation opens up and the door shuts after the 144th hour. And so typically, once we start the progesterone, either by an injection or vaginal suppositories or however your doctor chooses to do that, then we time when we do the transfer based on when you start the progesterone. And the the transfer is pretty easy. If you've ever had IUIs before, it's a pretty easy process. And like Carrie said, many times when I've done transfers, patients will be like, that's it? That's that's all you have to do? (laughs) It's a lot to get there. But once the transfer actually happens, it's pretty anticlimactic. Mm -hmm. You will be on the the medications for a good long time afterwards if you're pregnant, because we want to make sure that we're giving you lots of support all the way through. Um, But... But yeah, it's it's very anticlimactic compared to everything else you've just been through to get those embryos. Absolutely. And there's a, there's a couple of different ways. I think most of us do some variation of a stimulated cycle. There's lots of different ways for that to happen. Um, but some people also do um, kind of a, a, a cycle, whether it's a natural cycle or a Femara-based cycle where we're recruiting follicles or sometimes people even, even use gonadotropins, the injectable mm-hmm. medications, especially if you have trouble making a nice decline. Lining. And so there's there's a lot of art to this part of art. <laughs> and, and so, um, you know, it, it's one of those we have we have lots of ways to get where we where we go. There's not necessarily a single way to get there. Um, but we're all wanting a thick trilaminar lining and we're wanting a low progesterone. And, and however we end up individually getting there for the most part, probably doesn't matter. Um, just making sure you have a certain thickness. And and that can vary from person to person because there are some people who just won't make a super thick lining. But I think all of us know we've we've gotten people pregnant with thinner linings, but if they look nice and pretty, that, that tends to be more important and making sure that progesterone level's nice and low. Very good. So today we're going to talk about things that we as physicians don't worry too much about, but things that we see patients or when patients come to us, they worry about these things, but we don't worry about them. And this is sort of like um, kind of the, the other half of the coin. Last week, we talked about things that we worry about that patients generally don't worry about. So um, Susan, would you like to get us started and tell us something that you don't really worry about, but that your patients worry about? Right. So this is this is more a kind of like, let's not lose the forest for the trees. Let's look at the big picture. Okay. So when you're struggling with fertility challenges, one thing I try to encourage people not to worry about too much is what their eventual due date is going to be. Okay. Because you need to realize that it takes us a certain amount of time to get your evaluation and your evaluation is very important. So we know the big picture. We don't want to make you ovulate and then you have no sperm or block tubes. Okay. And, and we know that there are certain, um, I, I see certain cultures, certain faiths and certain occupations 
that wants certain things to happen at certain times. And if those are very important to you, share them with us, but understand that there is, there's only so much we can control. And our, we know you all wanted to be pregnant yesterday. And so making sure that we're, we're doing things right, we're going to get you pregnant as soon as we can. And if there's something we can manipulate, we will. Um, But know that, you know, in the grand scheme of your lifetime of having a child, when that birthday actually is. And even if we get you pregnant with an intended birthday, that doesn't mean your baby is not going to be preterm or post dates. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. you know, it, it it's just one of those things that it's easier if you maybe kind of bring that down as not a super, super important thing. Definitely. All right, Carrie, what do you got? When people come in and they are agonizing over the fact that their period was a day late, day early, half a day shorter, half a day longer. Um, and I, I see this at all phases of things. So most people, if they're going to uh, perseverate about it, it's usually at the initial appointment. But there are lots of people who, as we're going through appointments, will, and going through the process of everything, will say, you know, my period was 12 hours later than it usually is, or it was a week later this time, or um, it was earlier, whatever it may be. And they're agonizing over it. Well, what do you think that means? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> periods are entitled to do whatever the hell they want to do. Um, in general, you're going to see a similar pattern. In general, if you bleed for four days, you're going to bleed for four days, give or take a day or two in either direction. Um, if you have 28-day cycles, you're going to have 28-day cycles, give or take a day or two in any direction. But every period is given the grace to skip to be early, to be late, to be affected by whatever else is going on in your life. And we usually don't lose a lot of sleep over it. Now, if it's if we're trying to time something and we're basing important things off of it, we're going to cross-check labs. We're going to cross-check your ultrasound because there are a lot of women who say, I started bleeding and it's not actually their period. It's, it's uterine bleeding, vaginal bleeding, but it's not the hormonal response cause and effect that we think of as a period. And so um, people agonize over that. And in general, we want to know the pattern. We want to know if there is a consistent change in the pattern. And we want to know what your most recent period day is because we're basing stuff off of that. But people spend a lot of time agonizing over that. And it really, um, it's important, but but down to the day, down to the hour, those minute changes are, are less important than people perhaps think. And I'd just like to add to part of the reason why we we're really trying to find a basic pattern, because generally, generally speaking, if your periods are about 34 days apart or less, you're probably ovulating. And that's really what we want to know, particularly in the initial visit is, is this somebody that I've got to worry about that they're not ovulating? Maybe that's the whole reason they're not getting pregnant. But like Carrie said, if your cycles are a little bit off, not exactly the same, but are roughly about that range, then probably you're ovulating and, and we don't worry too much about the, the specifics of it. Unless, unless- women um, on average have one weird period a year. And so, you know, if you have that one weird period, it's okay. You're normal. Mm. (laughs) You're normal. That's right. All right. So since this is fertility dots uncensored, let me just say, we don't really care about positions for sex. It really doesn't matter. As long as the sperm gets there, it really doesn't matter. Generally, it can stay in the female reproductive tract for two or three days, potentially. 
Generally, sperm that's ejaculated gets inside your uterus and actually has been shown in studies to get within your body cavity within even like 30 minutes after sex. So probably positions that you're in, as long as it gets in the right place, you're probably okay. That's a good one. That's a good one. one. So kind of on that note, whether or not you have been intentionally trying. So what I'm saying here is that the definition of infertility has nothing to do with peeing on sticks, planning on intercourse every other day. It has nothing to do with trying. If you are having unprotected intercourse, and honestly, I personally, if you're using the pullout method, that is not a method of birth control, okay? So if you have not at least been using condoms (laughs) or some other established method of contraception, you have been trying. And so when we start the clock on, you know, is this something that we're more or less concerned about? You know, we have patients come in all the time and they're like, well, we've been trying for nine months. And then I'll ask, well, how long have you not been preventing pregnancy? Oh, well, that's been five years. The five years is what we actually need to know. And so, Uh you know, it, being intentional has, I mean, it's great that you've been intentional and it, it, it's great that this is a, you know, planned intended pregnancy, but, but the, the time clock actually started when, when you weren't really planning. Yeah. And the joke goes, you know, for 85% of the people, I realize not the 15% that we're talking to or that I was part of, but for the 85% that use the pullout method, you know, the old joke goes, what do you call those people? Parents. 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 <laughs> Parents yeah. yeah. So it's it's really not much of a method, I guess you'd yeah. say. Yeah. I um I typically call the pullout method pull and pray. Yes. Because <laughs> that's, that's how effective it is. For most people, that's generally the case. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Carrie. So what else you got? Um, So a lot of people come in and they're worried about something that has happened in the last last week or so, like the time time frames that don't entirely make sense. So for example, they had a glass of wine. Oh my God, did that stop something from happening? Probably not. Um, they had uh, they had sex in. Normally, we tell people before you're going to do an insemination, give it two to five days of no ejaculation prior to collecting. And they they had sex 46 hours before we collected. It's not usually going to make a huge difference. Um, things like six years ago, they um, they were a drug user, or ten years ago they abused alcohol. Now those things can can sometimes play in. But usually if you've been off all of that for a good long time, it it has less impact. And so people are worried about exposures that they may have had throughout the course of time um, that are really more remote from what we're dealing with, or they are so minimal that it's less of a big deal. And people spend a lot of time really torturing themselves. And and it doesn't hugely play into to what we're doing. I mean, if you're if you're drinking a bottle of wine every night for several years, including now, let's talk about it. But um, but if you partied in college, that's okay. You partied in college. Um, mm-hmm. We're going to be looking for the big things that can sometimes go along with that behavior, like you know, block tubes from infections, some th- things like that that are more commonly associated. But you know, those things are associated with no risk factors too. And so you know, so we're going to look for the big things that are important to us. And people people spend a lot of time agonizing over onesie twosie type occurrences that really don't meaningfully impact fertility. Mm-hmm. So on a not so exciting front. 
I find that people get really upset about medical records. Like if they show up and I don't have their medical records, they just, some people get so um, just preoccupied by it. They're trying to look it up on their phone. They're trying to find all this stuff and they don't hear a word I'm saying. And most of the stuff by and large are things that you can probably tell us. Now, granted, if there's some labs and things that we're looking for, we can always request those. We do that every day. We get medical records every day from physicians practices. And, you know, if there's some lab like your thyroid or your AMH or something, we'll get it. It's not a big deal. We just kind of want a general idea. Did they tell you it was normal? Did they tell you it was abnormal? You know, that sort of thing. And, you know, pregnancy records, you know, most of what we need to know about your pregnancy, if you're coming back for maybe a second baby, you can tell us like if you had diabetes or something like that. So there's really not a ton of stuff in the medical records that we need. And a lot of times we'll get records. I mean, I'll get 60 or 70 pages of records. I mean, it's not uncommon to get that. I need in five. Or two. Yeah. And there's about two or three things we really need. We need your labs, um, you know, maybe your pap smear result. If you went through IVF somewhere else, maybe your stem sheet. There's really not a lot of stuff we need to look at. Um, and, and quite frankly, it's probably just a waste of paper if they send all that stuff to us. So um, don't get too preoccupied if your doctor doesn't send your records. And, you know, maybe we got them and we just don't have them here. We can't find it. I mean, it's not a big deal. It's just it's sort of just a, another piece of the puzzle that we can look at at a later time. It doesn't have to be while you're right there in the office. So this is something that I, I, I see quite quite frequently and patients I don't think really verbalize their concern, but I know it's there is patients who've had a termination in the past um, that most of the time, if you've had a termination, that probably did not affect your long-term mm-hmm. fertility. And and so, you know, I, having a termination and eventually having infertility is is one of those things that I know there's a lot of guilt tied to it. And and like I said, a lot of people yeah. don't necessarily verbalize it, but we all we all know that it's there. Um, but realize that most of the time, it, it didn't play a factor in why you're sitting here talking to us now. Abby, what do you got? So I'm thinking a couple of other things. People kind of always feel like kind of along the same line that is there something that they did wrong or something that they're doing wrong that makes a difference? Like I went swimming last night. Well, that probably didn't make a difference. Or I, you know, I flew on a plane. Is my baby, is my pregnancy going to get oxygen? Is that the cause for my miscarriage? You know, if you can breathe, probably it didn't, it didn't cause a problem. So, you know, the good news, bad news is there's big things, obviously coming to the fertility doctor, doing IUIs, things like that that can help you get pregnant. But most of the things that we like to think we have control over that make a difference probably don't. And that goes to foods. You know, certainly we want you to have a healthy diet. We want you to have a normal body weight, but there's really not any particular food that I would tell you like after your embryo transfer, go eat this food and this is going to get you pregnant. You know, I mean, I wish there was something like that, but unfortunately there's not. So, um, so unfortunately there's not a lot and that goes to supplements too. You know, certainly there's certain supplements that we do recommend like vitamins, prenatal vitamins, folic acid, vitamin D. Beyond that, there's not a lot of other supplements maybe coenzyme Q10 might be thrown in there, but there's not a lot of supplements that can really make a huge positive impact on pregnancy rates. Um, and you may have something to add to that too, Susan. I'm trying to think of yeah, anything I, else. I think the, the, the part about diet is, is a good thing. What, what are things that our patients are worried about and we're not quite as worried about? We, of course, want you to have a good, healthy, balanced diet. And you know, my, my theme is when people ask me about it, I'm like, life in moderation. 
Okay. If you're, <laughs> if you're having to do something in such an extreme that it is like stressing you out more than anything, then, then the diet probably isn't worth it. And as much as we know that, you know, being healthy and having that well-rounded diet is, is important, it is probably not the reason you're sitting there talking to us. So, you know, if, if you want to eat like, the inside part of the pineapple, the core of the pineapple. <laughs> I was thinking eat, pineapple, yeah. Eat, eat your heart out. You know, if you want to have French fries after your embryo transfer, go and enjoy those McDonald's French fries. You know, have have a Coke on me because I love McDonald's Coke. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's it, it's that that type of thing where, where all those things put together, you know, if it is helping you and empowering you, go for it. But it, it is probably probably not going to be the one sole thing that has prevented you from this day of conceiving. Yeah, and two of the things I happen to think of while you're talking, coffee's another thing. People ask me a lot of times, should I just stop drinking coffee? It's probably fine. Anything in moderation. We say under 200 milligrams, which is at least a cup and maybe two cups of coffee, depending on how strong your coffee is. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is, um, is uh, anti-anxiety medicine. And, you know, there's no real anti-anxiety, antidepressant medicine that we know is 100% safe. But the group of medicines, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, there's a couple in that group that we know are pretty safe. They've been around for 20 plus years. Um, there hasn't been a significant problem with a couple of them. Now, there's one that we want you to avoid. But by and large, most people, when they come to me, they've already had somebody, you know, put them on those drugs knowing that they're going to get pregnant. And so, you know, by all means, if you're stressed and you're anxious, which many of our patients are with all the things I have to go through and with just kind of dealing with life and infertility in general, um, generally those types of drugs, I think I encourage the use of those because I think it's it's not a good time to stop those things when you're right in the middle of doing a fertility evaluation and starting fertility treatment. And there's actually very good data to say that if you are emotionally stable during your pregnancy, your pregnancy outcomes are going to be better. So if you have significant depression or anxiety and it needs to be managed pharmacologically, I think it's the yeah, right word. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, that it is much better for you to take medicine and be in a well-balanced mood than it is for you to be, oh, I'm not going to take any medicines because that's going to hurt my baby. Actually, it, it could, by not taking medicines, right, could yeah. actually hurt your baby more. And, and so understanding um, that type of thing, it, it, it's an important concept. So, so I have one last thing, Susan. Do you have anything else that you can think of? That I think those are my big ones. Carrie, you got anything? So my so my one last thing is MTHFR. Oh that's my goodness! That, yes, <laughs> that's that's something that's kind of come and gone over time. And it used to be something that we really worried a lot about, but we don't worry about so much more. So one of the things that so one of the patient things that patients a lot of times are really worried about is something called MTHFR. And that was something probably eight or 10 years ago that we did worry about. And we checked in everybody that came in that had recurrent pregnancy loss, particularly. And it kind of got out there on the Internet. And it's one of those things on the Internet that never dies. Now, not only are fertility doctors not worried about it, but also hematologists are not worried about it. We used to worry that maybe it could cause issues with recurrent pregnancy loss, and we really don't think it's the case anymore. 
anymore. So we generally don't check that as part of a workup for recurrent pregnancy loss. But almost invariably, if you don't check that, somebody goes, well, why didn't you check that? So I usually bring that up. And in my patients, I, sometimes I'll give them the option of doing that. But but probably we really don't need to do that. So I, just I, do that just, I would like to say that the data that supports issues with MTHFR are people who have losses in the second and third trimester, which is less than 5% of recurrent pregnancy loss patients. And so if if you're a if you have an MTHFR mutation and you've had first trimester pregnancy losses, I mean, you can take methylated folate, but realistically, it, it probably has not had a significant impact on your chances of pregnancy loss and those types of things. All right. Well, interesting show. Hope you guys got something out of it. And so to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave a review for us in Apple Podcast. We'd really love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram. We're also on Facebook and YouTube. Be sure and follow and subscribe to stay updated on all things infertility. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. We also love episode ideas so let us know what you're thinking and want to hear and as always this podcast is intended for entertainment it's not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician all right guys we'll talk with you soon bye this podcast is also brought to you by fertility pharmacy of america Fertility Pharmacy of America is a fertility dedicated pharmacy that partners with physicians across the country in order to provide patients with a more personalized pharmacy experience. Pride ourselves on ensuring that every prescription is accurate, delivered in a timely manner, and most importantly, affordable for all patients. A team of trained pharmacists, technicians, and customer service representatives will be with you every step of the way, providing you with knowledge and exceptional quality care for all of your fertility medication needs. More than just a specialty pharmacy, they're a committed partner during your fertility journey. Fertility Pharmacy of America, making miracles happen every day. Please text or call us at 844-449-8767 and reference Fertility Docs Uncensored.